Good morning, everyone. Good to be here with you this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Kevin. I'm a pastor. I serve here on staff as the multiplication and mobilization pastor, um, or M&M pastor for short. So uh, if you want to come and talk to me after the service about what that means, I'd be happy to do that. If you want to come to talk to me about getting candy-coated chocolate after the service, I can't help you with that. But it's good to be here with you this morning, good to, to bring the word. Uh, before we get into it, I do want to say one thing. Um, we've been asking you to, uh, to come out and join our Bayview Kids Serve Team. I want to let you know that 50 people have um, begun the process of getting into our classrooms to serve our kids that way. So thank you, all of you who have responded. But I do also want to say that with 50 new people, we still don't have enough bodies to make sure that we're running an amazing, amazing uh, kids' ministry. So we would invite you to continue to respond to God and the Holy Spirit as he prompts your heart to serve in that arena. Um, some of you may not realize that you actually don't have to be working with kids to serve in Bayview Kids. Some of you are thinking, oh, that's not my forte, but if you love computers and you can help us with our check-in system with IT, we would love to have you. We are currently looking for an IT specialist. We are looking also for uh, safety support staff to help keep our children safe and secure as they worship God on a Sunday morning. Uh, we're also looking for an event planner. Any aspiring event planners out there? Somebody want to get into that field? We're looking for an event planner. So guys, go to bayviewglen.org slash serve. Uh, look at some of these job descriptions. Uh, we would love to have you join our Bayview Kids Serve team. Okay, so we are looking at chapter 6 in the book of the Gospel of John. We have just finished with chapter 5, uh, and just like chapter 5, it is the entire chapter uh, is a discrete unit. So all of chapter 6 really only makes sense when taken together. So we are going to preach through it in the next uh, four to five weeks. Um, so pay attention as we move along for some of those connections that, that can be made. Now, I'm, I'd like to draw a parallel between chapter 5 and chapter 6, but uh, I'm not going to spell it out for you. I would love for you to go home uh, and actually read those two chapters and look for those connections yourself. Uh, but what is really interesting is at the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus begins his ministry, his public ministry, and he only has the 12 with him. By the time we get to the end of chapter 6, all he has is the 12 with him. A lot happens in between. But it's amazing to see how he moves from starting with the 12 to finishing with the 12 in the span of two chapters and all that goes on in the middle. So I encourage you to go and find that out for yourself. I'm not going to give it away. But today we're going to focus on one of the central miracles in the life of Jesus that is recorded in all four gospel, uh, gospels, and it is the feeding of the 5,000. And the feeding of the 5,000 really does represent, uh, at least in John's gospel, the breaking in of God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So before we crack open our Bibles, let's, uh, let's pray together and uh, let's ask God's blessing upon our time. Father, we're, uh, we're grateful to be in your presence this morning. Holy Spirit, uh, would you move in our midst? Would you open our minds, our hearts, um, our ears, and our eyes to you? Lord, we want to know you, we want to see you. Would you speak to us this morning um, through your word? Would you teach us this morning, God, what it means that you are a good father uh, and that you give and love us abundantly in all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you do want to open your Bibles, you can take it from the seat back in front of you. Uh, you can open it up in your app. We're looking at the first part of John chapter 6. Um, we're going to move through it uh, bit by bit. Uh, not like last week where I read you big swaths of Scripture. We're going to actually go verse by verse today. 
Uh, this is why I'm sitting down. It's a, it feels like a different bit of a different posture for this sermon today. <laughs> so in John chapter 6, verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So um, the words after this tells us that an unspecified period of time has passed. We don't know how much time has passed between Jesus being in uh, Jerusalem in chapter 5 and now moving to the region of Galilee. Uh, we know that enough time has elapsed for Jesus to travel from Jerusalem to Galilee and also for him to gather a following of people from doing signs on the sick, which we will see. So he is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee now uh, in an area called uh, Bethsaida, which is northeast of where the Jordan flows from the north. So if you want to take a look at this map, I got this from Google Maps, so thank you, Google Maps, for this. This is uh, the present day, uh, the Sea of Galilee, also known as, as we see in our verse here, the Sea of Tiberias, um, also known as Lake Gennesaret. It has these different names depending on where you are situated uh, around this lake. So we've got here is Capernaum is around here, what we've heard about as we've been moving through the book of John. Um, Cana would have been around here. Uh, and this is Bethsaida, uh, and this is all along the coast here of the, the Lake of Galilee. And so depending, like I said, depending on where you are, you're going to call it different things. It's like the Persian Gulf. Most of you know the Persian Gulf. When I was living in the, the UAE, nobody called it the Persian Gulf. It was the Arabian Gulf, okay, depending on which side of the Gulf you lived on. And so that's what's happening here. That's why it has a number of names that it goes by. So verse 2 tells us that a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And so this large crowd is following Jesus. And as I was reading this, it made me think, you know, what, what causes large crowds to congregate in this way today, right? What makes people gather together? Sometimes it's uh, for the sake of celebrity, right? There's a celebrity, and people are interested in saying, what's with this crowd? Sometimes they don't even know who the celebrity is. They just see a crowd, and they gather together, right? Have you ever been in that situation? You should try this. You know, I've, I've done this a number of times, especially when I was, uh, when I was a student at U of T. I would, I would uh, stand on the sidewalk, and I would just look up. And as I stood there looking up, invariably people would gather around me and, and look up as well. And so people are just curious. And in that sense, there's this crowd that is gathering around Jesus, and they are, too are curious. Who is this man that is gathering this falling? What is he doing? Another reason that people um, gather together is for a cause, right? There's something that you believe in together. And the cause right here that Jesus is doing is that he is healing. And they are looking to be healed. And so they are following him because they want some of what Jesus is giving. Another reason that people gather together and congregate in large groups today is because of politics. They, you know, maybe sometimes it's a politician, sometimes it's politics. Whatever the case may be, there are people in this crowd who believe that Jesus might be the prophet that Moses spoke of that he could be the Messiah, the sent one of God, who is going to make the world right again. And so they are following him in this large crowd because they see the miracles that he is performing. He sees what he is doing on the sick. In a sense, they are weak themselves. They too are sick, and they want what Jesus has to offer. So they are curious. They are desperate. They are longing for a connection of some sort, and they follow Jesus looking for that. Verse 3 tells us that Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. So Bethsaida is in the present-day Golan Heights. So this is a little bit of what that landscape would look like, very hilly, kind of green and grassy. And Jesus would have made his way up to the side of a mountain here. 
and, uh, and overlooking the crowd that is coming behind him. We also know from verse 4 that it is Passover, the feast of the Jews, and it is at hand. It is close to coming. Now, Passover happens on the 15th day of Nisan in the Jewish calendar. Um, we don't follow the Jewish calendar. We follow the Gregorian calendar. And so in that calendar, just much like Easter, Easter and Passover, um, analogous in some ways, uh, happens sometimes between, some, anytime between March and April, right, depending on the year. And so it is springtime, and, it is, and what Jesus is, is, um, is traveling through this uh, region, close to Passover, close to the time of spring. And verse 5 tells us that lifting up his eyes then, Jesus, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, he said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? So Jesus here looks up and he sees the crowd. And in the other synoptic gospels, in the other gospel recordings of this, um, uh, of this miracle, it says Jesus looks upon the people and he has compassion on them. And if you read through the gospels, you will see that this is almost always invariably the, um, the response that Jesus has when he looks at those who are coming to him. He looks upon them and he has compassion. Now, perhaps from this particular vantage point on the mountain, this is the first time he actually sees the size of the following. But when he sees them, he wants to care for them. Jesus wants to care for the people who are coming to him. And his first response is, I want to feed these guys. I want to feed these people. I want to feed them. Because for Jesus, and I think as we know, that the act of eating together is more than just feeding tummies. It's more than just filling bellies. There's something special about sharing a meal together. And Jesus wants them to experience this. And so Jesus asks Philip this question. Philip is a local boy. He's from Bethsaida. And he should know where a good place to buy bread is, right? Maybe, is, that, is that the question he's asking? Is he just asking Philip and saying, hey, you're from Bethsaida. Where can we buy bread? Not exactly. Because Jesus is testing Philip's faith. Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. What has Philip learned to this point by being with Jesus? If you go back to chapter 2, verse 11, we see this. Chapter 2 is, um, is the, the wedding at Cana. This is where Jesus, in his first miracle, not public miracle, his first miracle, he turns water into wine at this wedding. And this was the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And who? His disciples, Philip included. His disciples believed in him. And so at the wedding at Cana, Philip was there and he's like, I believe you are who you say you are, Jesus, the Son of God. You can turn water into wine. That is amazing. But if you go back even further in John chapter 1, verse 45, when Jesus calls Philip to follow him, Philip goes and he finds Nathanael and he says to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so Philip confesses that this is indeed the one that Moses wrote about. This is the one that we're anticipating. This man, Jesus, is the Messiah. And so he has these confessions, but what we see as Jesus tests Philip, and we're going to see in his response in a moment, that, that Philip actually fails this test. He fails the test. Ah, he gets the buzzer. Thank goodness for Philip. It's not the final exam, okay? It's just the test. So he can recover. 
But what Philip doesn't realize is the full significance of his own confession of who Jesus is. He's experienced these things about Jesus. He says, I believe, he believes in him. He's seen him change water into wine. He confesses that this is the guy that Moses and the prophets have been talking about. This is who we're anticipating. Yet in this moment, he cannot see what is happening. So what that tells me is this, folks, that our faith must be active. Our faith must be active. And what I, believe, what I mean by that is that we in this series are asking you to believe, to put your active trust in the Son of God, Jesus, the risen Savior. And, and when I say that our faith must be active, it means this, that we cannot rest easy on what God has accomplished in us and through us in the past. You cannot just rest easy on what God has accomplished in you and through you in the past. Listen to the words of Paul as he writes to the Philippians. He says, not that I have already obtained this. He's talking about righteousness. Not have I already obtained this or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I, that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is this. When we look at this verse, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, we tend to think of all of the bad stuff that's happened in our life, right? The stuff that's going to hold us down, the stuff that's going to keep us back. So let's get rid of all of that. Let's forget it and let's think positively and strain towards what the future holds. It is limitless. That's not what Paul is saying. Well, in a sense, it is what Paul is saying, but that's not the complete picture. Paul is saying, forget all that lies behind the good, the bad, the ugly. Because you cannot rest on what has come. You cannot make a confession and say, oh, this has happened to me in my life, and so I'm going to sit back and relax because I am set now. I've had this experience with God, and I don't need to move any further. Guys, if I can tell you the truth, if you're not moving forward in your Christian life, if, you are, if God isn't conforming you more into the image of God, you're not standing still. You're actually moving backwards. And so when Paul says forget what is behind, it's, to, it's not to forget all of it. But it's not to put stock in it because that is not what's going to see you into the future. It's the, the continued revelation of him to you, the continued experience that you have with him as you strain towards what is ahead. So our faith must be active in that sense. And so this is a pattern of God to test the godly to deepen their faith. God doesn't just test anybody. When Jesus says, I'm going to test them, he's not doing it because he's mean-spirited. He's not trying to trap Philip. He's doing that because he cares for Philip, and he wants to put a marker in place that Philip can look back to and say, ah, that was a moment when I was being tested, and God wanted me to draw deeper in my faith. God only tests the godly for the sake of their own godliness. This is a reality for all of us who call Jesus Lord. God, is, God tests us for the sake of our godliness. So I had an experience like this in, uh, back in 1999, way back, turn of the century, wow, turn of the millennium. 
Um, I was slotted to go on a missions trip to China, and I was going with a, a, a group of doctors. And I have no idea why I was even on this trip. Um, one of the doctors on this trip decided that God wanted me to go on it. I don't know how he, how he felt that. Holy Spirit speaks? Yeah, okay. So that's probably the reason. But there I was, signed up for this trip. And I found out that I was rooming um, with the head neurosurgeon at Vancouver General Hospital. And I'm like, I'm in like third year university. I'm like, what business do I have hanging out with this guy who like saves lives? I'm the wrong guy for this trip. And as I was getting closer and closer to the departure date, I just, I became um, just incapacitated with my own uh, ineffectiveness, with just how small I felt. And I was like, God, you've got the wrong guy. I shouldn't be coming on this trip. And, and I felt that really it was a test of my faith. Could I trust God to go on this trip? And as I was praying one day, there was a prayer meeting, I was praying together, I was just, I was on my knees, and I was just begging God. I was like, God, just turn the ship around. I don't know that I'm supposed to be the guy for the, for, to go on this thing, and I really don't want to. And as I was praying, God, um, God gave me a vision, and this vision looked a lot like the movie The Matrix, okay? I feel like I keep making references to movies. It tells a lot about who I am, right? So the movie The Matrix, anybody seen The Matrix? Okay, the first one, the good one, The Matrix, right? Um, so Neo, the lead character, he's, uh, he goes into The Matrix and he's standing in a room, okay? And he's like, you know, in his like awesome, you know, trench coat, it's all black, he's got his sunglasses on. And like, and it, the room is completely white and he's waiting for something, okay? What he's waiting for is a lot of guns to appear, but I'm not gonna actually give you any context for that. I'm sorry. Okay, so he's sitting in this room, and it's all white, and that's how, that's kind of where I was at. I picture, the picture in my mind was that I was standing in this room, and there was nothing else as far as the eye could see except for white, and then all of a sudden I turn around, and then there's this doorway, not a door, a doorway, and it was pitch black. Like, I could see into it, but not beyond the doorway, but I knew there was something there, and I knew that God was asking me to step into it and through it. And as I was, I was there praying, I was like, God, don't ask me to step through this door. I have no idea what's beyond it. And he said to me, Kevin, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust that I'm the one who's asking you to go on this trip? I'm the one who's asking you to step through this door. And so there I was, and I had no good answer for that except to say, God, yes, I trust you. And so in my vision, I actually stepped through the door. And I can't tell you how I felt except to say that this warmth, this comfort, this security just flooded over me. And in that, in that moment, I didn't know what was going to come. I didn't know what was going to happen when I was on this trip. All I knew in that moment was that God wanted me to go, and I was going to have faith and go. Guys, we're all going to face these types of situations in our lives. It may not look exactly the same, but as believers, we are going to be put to the test. In the face of fear, in the face of grief, our faith will be put to the test. In the face of cruelty and injustice, in the face of poverty and brokenness in the world, we must be vigilant to remember that Jesus is who he says he is. We must have faith that God is the ultimate reality 
in every situation, that in every situation, God, well, not every, but in every situation, God can be the provider in that situation. He can be the judge in that situation. He can be the, the healer. He is our good, good father. And so our faith needs to be active in the sense that as we follow him, we must do it with vigilance. We must do it every day, committing, recommitting to believing that Jesus is the son of God and he is who he says he is. Let's look at verse seven. Philip answered him. So this is Philip's obtuse and groping answer. 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. Philip answers a where question. Where are we gonna buy bread, Philip? And he answers it with a how answer. Okay, something's not lining up here because what, Peter, what Philip is concerned about is the logistics. He's concerned with what is possible. Let's look at Andrew's um, response as well. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Yeah, we've got a bit of food here, Jesus, but that's not going to help the situation, is it? And there's a pattern of response that we see when, when Jesus poses questions or poses statements, propositions to people. We saw it with Nicodemus. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night and Jesus talks to him about being born again, this is what Nicodemus says. He says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? See, Nicodemus is concerned with what is possible. He's concerned with what is possible. We see that with the woman in Samaria, the woman at the well. Jesus offers her living water. And she says to him this, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Again, this woman is concerned with what is possible. It's like they're not even hearing Jesus. Friends, what is possible are worldly concerns can drown out the voice of Jesus. Our worldly concerns can drown out the voice of Jesus. God is speaking, and he wants you to listen. God is speaking. He is alive. He is active. He is the God who speaks. Now, some of you may think, but I don't know what his voice sounds like. Well, we can help you. Come to our church prayer meeting, and we will help you to listen to God. We'll help you to learn to recognize his voice. God is speaking, and he wants you to listen, but sometimes our worldly concerns can drown out the voice of Jesus. When, um, when Grace and I led a team to the United Arab Emirates in the UAE in, um, in November of 2013, leading up to that trip, after we had found out that we were going, um, Grace uh, developed a persistent pain in her abdomen, in her side. And for months, we were in and out of doctors, x-rays, tests, and we couldn't figure out, doctors couldn't figure out where the pain was coming from and why it was there. All the while, as we were preparing for this trip, this pain is continuing to grow. And it is very distracting. And it starts to kind of overtake a lot of what Grace is doing, and, and, and even her function is starting to drop. But as we, go, as we prepare for this trip, the people all around her are starting to say, hey, you're not feeling well. 
You even have surgery coming up three weeks before you're supposed to leave. No one's going to fault you if you don't go to this trip. Just hang back and stay back. You're in a lot of pain. But Grace, as she prayed about it, and as she sought God, she felt God confirm that, you know, this wasn't something that he was calling her to, and for her to press on through it. And so after surgery in October, three weeks later, she found herself on a a plane going overseas to, to support our workers in that region. And when we were there, when we landed, all these, I mean, these gracious, our, our international workers just all surrounded her, was caring, really loving to her. And they were like, oh, don't worry about it. Why don't you go to your, your hotel room and rest as we got there? And Grace is thinking, I don't want to go to my hotel room and rest. I'm here to serve you. What's happening? And so she cries out to God and says, God, this just, can you just get rid of this pain? It is distracting me. It is keeping me from hearing you. And as she prayed in desperation this prayer, God healed her and lifted the pain. The doctors, surgeons, no one could tell her where this pain was coming from. And in that prayer, God lifted it from her. And that is what pointed us, and that's made made us laser focused when we were on that trip because we knew that God was going to say something and God was going to do something. And that's when God called us overseas. And that's when God called us to move our family to the Middle East. So worldly concerns can break in, they can come in and crowd out the voice of Jesus. But for, and, and for Philip here, it's a, trick, it's a bit of a tricky question because um, he says, where do I buy bread? But if Philip's deck had been cleared of the worldly concerns that he had, he may have answered this instead. He may have answered, based on his experience with Jesus, he may have answered, Lord, you know you know, maybe not where to buy bread, but you know what's going to happen because I've seen you change water into wine. Lord, you know. Let's keep moving. Verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down about 5,000 in number. So Jesus speaks again, and he issues a directive. Have the people be seated, he says. Jesus takes charge of the situation like a father like a host of a big meal. And you got to remember, as, as you read through John, Jesus is for the people, right? There's a nearness that he has. There's a companionship. For Jesus, this is not a faceless, nameless crowd. He knows every single one of them. And so the people in that companionship, in that nearness that they feel to him, they sit down, they listen and obey because they would have been weary from their traveling. They travel along the coast. Jesus would have took a ship, okay, a boat from one side of Galilee to the other, and then he would have, and they would have come around the coast to follow him. And so they're tired. They're just, you know, trying to catch up to Jesus. And as we see here, there are 5,000 men. 5,000 men, and according to some accounts, there might be up to 20,000 people if you include women and children that might be in tow. So this isn't your run-of-the-mill Sunday picnic, right? I mean, this is like, this is like a, ra- a sold-out, Raptors game in the Air Canada Center. 20,000 people. And I love this detail John puts in. There was much grass in the place. Guys, if I, can, if I can leave anything with you when you read through the book of John is look at the details. John puts them in there for a reason. I just want you to picture this scene. It's springtime. The day is warm but there's a cool breeze that 
drifts lazily off the sea and makes its way through the gathered men, women, and children. They're worn out from the journey, but their spirits are high. Jesus has invited them to sit and to rest. They don't know why. They don't know how. I mean, he's all the way up in the mountain, but there is this feeling of being at home in his presence. The grass is lush, and it provides a comfortable cushion for their weary bodies. No one's jostling for someone else's spot. There's room for everyone. In fact, each person makes room for the other. And even in the midst of the many people, they are at rest. They are at rest. So verse 11 says, Jesus takes the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Jesus gives thanks, and he points it all back to the Father, the giver of all, creator of heaven and earth. He gives thanks for all of creation, in fact. And then, John tells us, he distributed. He distributed. For me, this is another part of the miracle. Actually, for me, this is the cooler part of the miracle. I mean, it's great that Jesus can multiply five fish, or five loaves and two fish, into lunch enough for 20,000 people. But here you see that Jesus distributed them to those who were seated. In the other Gospels, it says that the disciples did it. But I like what John is doing here, okay? He's showing us something. Because I, I would love, I love this scene, okay? I did the math. If Jesus took five seconds to distribute to 5,000 men, it would have taken him seven hours to personally distribute the bread and the fish. I, w- I want to think that Jesus did that because that, it's so much in his character to go from person to person to know for, that, for each of them to know that they are loved and cared for. And so, for me, the part of this miracle is that Jesus shows that he is not only Lord of multiplying things. He is the Lord of time and space as well. I don't know how he could have done this on his own with this many people. But I love the scene that he did. And I think it is entirely possible that Jesus could have done it. And it's part of the miracle that he has. And everyone received as much as they wanted. In that moment, the people's cares are washed away. You see, they're no longer patients looking for care. They're not, look, they're not no longer the weak and the sick looking for healing. They're there as human beings, just enjoying God's creation, enjoying God's bounty, enjoying one another. It's a little taste of heaven for them in that grassy knoll, in that, that, that grassy hillside. And in this, Jesus reveals that he is a, that, that reveals a God who cares comprehensively. Jesus reveals a God who cares comprehensively. The people, without pomp, without circumstance, they have received everything they need for that moment. And it all happens naturally, okay? Okay, it doesn't happen naturally. It happens supernaturally, but it happens in a way where they don't even realize that it's happening. Their physical, spiritual, emotional, relational needs are being met in that moment. And it happens when they turn their attention away from their own immediate ailments, when the, away from their own immediate desires. In that moment, they're able to receive what God is giving to them. In a moment of unguardedness, 
in a moment of just simply being human. This whole scene evokes Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Jesus is the one who takes care of my needs. He is the one who knows me. He is the one who watches out for me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. We'll talk about waters next week. He restores my soul. Isn't that beautiful? Let's keep going. Verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered up, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. This is God, our God, who gives in excess. When Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fish, he didn't do it with just enough for everyone to eat. Everyone had their fill, and there was more left over. We saw it also in Cana. This excessive amount of water turned into wine, the best for everyone, more than they could drink. And so this tells me that Jesus reveals a God who gives and loves abundantly. That is God. He gives abundantly because he loves abundantly. He gives abundantly because he loves abundantly. And he has shown us his love abundantly, most profoundly and completely in his self-giving. God incarnate. The Son of God becomes man. The Word becomes flesh and, dwell, and dwells among us and dwelt among us. Jesus, God's abundant love, God's abundant giving shows up in the giving of himself. On that beautiful spring morning where Jesus gave to those who sought him for his gifts, his thoughts were probably not far off from that fateful day where his entire earthly existence is propelling him towards, where he would give to those who received him and he would give to those who rejected him alike and his loving abundance would find its full and final consummation in his death, in his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. That is ultimately what abundant and giving love does. It gives of himself. God gives of himself. Listen to Jean Vanier. He says this. What does it mean to love abundantly? It does not only mean to give things but to give ourselves. Dads, I want you to hear this this morning. Abundant love for your children does not only mean to give things, but to give yourself. Jesus gives himself totally to us. He loves us abundantly so that we may learn to love others abundantly. He loves us abundantly so that we can learn to love others abundantly. Because loving others abundantly is how the world will know that we are his disciples. Listen to, again to the words of Jesus, John chapter 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Loving others, friends, that will be the true miracle. That will be the true sign 
of God's kingdom come on earth as in heaven when we love as Jesus loves. Regardless of who believes, regardless of who rejects, just to love. We're gonna, we're gonna respond with, uh, with a song we learned last week called Build My Life. And in this song, the verse uh, or the, the words that are really significant and I, I really want you to kind of zero in on as, as we sing together is this. It says, show me who you are, fill me with your heart, and lead me in your love to those around me. Show me who you are, fill me with your heart, and lead me in your love to those around me. Let's pray. Father, again, just grateful for your love, grateful for your compassion, grateful for the heart of your son, Jesus Christ, the love that he showed to everyone, any shape, color, Jew, Gentile, those who believed, those who rejected, he loved. And he teaches us, Lord, to love in the same way. So would you allow us, God, to show your love to those around us, to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in the world so people will see and glorify you, our Father in heaven. Amen.